Good evening. Good to see you here tonight. Did you guys all have a happy Easter? That was great. It was a beautiful Sunday. It was great to see everyone there. It was a great. Even though it was a busy week last week, we talked about Good Friday on Friday, of course, and then had Easter. Uh, we're in John's Gospel, and we're in chapter 19. So if you want, you can turn there. And we're going to finish chapter 19. That's the idea, anyway. And we're going to start at verse, let's see, verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that evening had now been finished, everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to his lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross, crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it was given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, 
and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray together. Father, as we go over this account once again, Lord, might our hearts be stirred and might the emotion of this story grip our lives as well. We thank you again for your goodness to us. And and even as we know, Father, you gave your life for us, even as we've just sung. And so, Father, it is an amazing grace and it is something that overwhelms our ability to understand But Lord, might we enter into this time and this story together. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. As it starts off in this account, we see that there is a changing of hands from the Jewish authorities to Pilate. And Pilate finally gives the words for the soldiers for them to take charge of Jesus. And really what would take place at this time is the governor would say, you will go to the cross. That is his pronouncement of you're found guilty. And so the verdict was then carried out. And and before I go on, I want to ask you again, as we go through this, remember we are wanting to answer the questions you have. We are wanting to uh, include you into this discussion. So reading this story uh, this evening. Are there any things that stand out to you or questions that you have? I want to see that we can address those or any things that specifically stood out. I want to make sure that you have a voice and are able to share those things as well in this portion of scripture. So are there any questions or thoughts? So what do you mean by he had a change of heart? What did... Hmm. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, we, we saw that kind of mockery taking place, beating Jesus, putting the robe on him, the crown of thorns, here's your king, you know, and, and so, and we know from last week with Pilate and his interaction with the Jews, they weren't on good terms. And so he had done a number of things to kind of mock their beliefs. It would seem that this would kind of be along with that, but you know, I think what you're noticing is something coming from our viewpoint. This is the king of the Jews, you know, and so we see it from that perspective. And that's why they protested, you know, 
take that down. He'd say that he says he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, I have written what I have written. And really, it's Pilate's way of, again, continuing that contention and almost getting his last word. Remember, last week we saw that he didn't want to see Jesus crucified, but because of the political pressure, he caved. And when he caved, you know, it was kind of, we talked about last week, that he didn't have to, but something was more important than this justice and his fear and his superstitions that were driving him. And so that political pressure is what drove him, and I think this was his way of just saying, yeah, well, here, take this. And it was kind of jeering towards them and trying to to deal with them one last, this is what I think, kind of a thing about you and your, you know, justice. And so it really seems to be a a stubbornness about Pilate. But what I think is striking here is he's stubborn about this, trying to get to them, but he wasn't stubborn about trying to see justice served. And, And isn't it so true so many times we can be very stubborn about certain things, but then very non-caring about other things. I mean, I've talked to people who have no problems with some areas of their life, you know, whether it be in in getting drunk or whether it be in sleeping around, but then they're very adamant about their faith as, you know, whether it be a Catholic or whatever. You know, and it's like, I'm stubborn about this part. Yeah, this is what I believe, and I'm going to hold on to this belief, but then I'll live like hell the rest of the week and do whatever I want. And it's amazing how we can live that kind of a dichotomy in our lives. And, and I think we need to be aware of that because we don't want to be the same way. We don't want to be stubborn about some things and hold on to these things very stubbornly and then be not so concerned in other areas of our life that are equally as important. And I find this happens a lot. My kids made me aware of this uh, very much so as they were growing up through church and they would see you know, people who were in a, a leadership role over them and they would see hypocrisy in their life. And they'd say, yeah, they're saying we can't do this and we can't listen to this music and we can't do this, but look at what they're doing. And those things would stand out to them, and so they would see that and say, oh yeah, they're real religious over here, but they're real hypocrites over here. And we don't want to be people who who just hold on to the parts that we like and the things that we like. We want to hold on and be stubborn about the things that really concern us and God, all those things that concern justice and, and love and mercy, those things that are important. Even as Jesus told the disciple or the Pharisees, you know, you strain the littlest parts of the law. You, you give a tenth of every spice and anointment, but you neglect mercy and justice. And you should have held on to both and not just one or the other. And so we don't want to be religious people who are conveniently religious. And we see that kind of taking place with Pilate. He puts the king of the Jews, I'm going to be stubborn about this. I'm going to get my last word in. But you had a chance, Pilate, to allow Jesus to go, and you didn't. You weren't stubborn about the things that probably were more important. You were about the things that were just to get your last licks in. That's what it seems to me in that story. 
Well, there's a, there's a question. Um, we know that it was going to happen, and we know that all the things that led up to it, I mean, Jesus prophesying that it was going to happen, um, but did, does that take Pilate off the hook for his responsibility for being part of what happened? In other words, was Pilate without choice? Or is Pilate responsible for his choice? Have you ever seen your kids and you know they're going to do something before they do it? And you tell them, don't do it, but you know they're going to do it. You know what I mean? It's like, and you can see the inevitable going to happen. You see them, you know, whatever, like the two, you know, kids take the boxing gloves and put them on. And you say, okay, you know, don't hurt your brother. And you're like, oh, he's going to hurt him. You know, it's going to happen. Someone's going to get a, a bloody nose and someone's going to start crying. And sure enough, you know, you tell them don't do it, but they're going to end up doing it. I think God is similar. And it's not like, well, I'm telling you not to do it. And so there I'm taking, I'm proclaiming that it's going to happen. Or I could say, I know one of you is going to get hurt. I'm not taking away their free will. I just know one of them is going to get hurt because I know them. And I think God is very similar in that he knows humanity very well. You know what I'm saying? More than we do. Well, yeah, yeah, Pilate said, yeah, don't you know that I have the power to sentence you to death? And Jesus said, you have no power unless it was given to you from my father. And so, again, God is always at work, but we need to make sure we understand just because God is at work doesn't mean we're free from the responsibilities that we have. Yeah. And so Pilate, God is probably looking at Pilate and says, I know what you're going to do because I know you. I know how you cave to the pressure. I know how you're more worried about this. I know how your, you know, your thinking is. And I know that this is going to happen. And no doubt God is at work through all these things, seeing them come to place. You know, it, it, it blows our minds when we think of how much God is aware of things and how much he is able to work and orchestrate in spite of us. At least it blows my mind. But it shouldn't cause us to think on the other spectrum that, well, therefore, God is the one doing it without human freedom. Uh, It's just a matter of God knowing the human condition, the human heart, and each individual. And I think that's important for us to recognize at some point our minds are going to say, okay, I can't compute anymore. I can only think this far. But I think God gives us enough reason to to kind of bridge the gap for where we don't understand. In other words, like how we can see and know, I know this is going to happen. How do you know that? Because I just know how my kids are going to act. And so I can tell you that when I leave, they're going to, you know, do this. They're going to turn up the music or they're going to, you know, get into a fight or whatever it is. How do you know that? Well, I just know my kids. And so if I tell them, well, I know you guys are going to get in a fight. Did I predict it? Did I make it happen? No, I just knew what was going to happen. And I think it's very similar with God. He knows what's going to take place. And he has designed things to work in that way. The, the cross was the intention from Genesis chapter 3. And so God from Genesis is working his way to to this point. And to me, that's the amazing thing, that throughout all of human existence, from the time of the fall, God has put into plan 
the salvation. And even as we're going to see, you know, this is taking place at the Passover, which reminds us of Exodus in chapter 32, where the lamb was slain and the blood was spilled and the angel passed over, the angel of death passed over them, the idea of Passover. Now here it's taking place and that was all to be just like it is, playing out in this way. And so Pilate, he's in this position. God knows his choices. God gives him the choice and knows what choice he's going to make. And he makes it. And then we see his stubbornness, king of the Jews. And to me, it's the irony that Pilate would have this made. And and what would happen at that time is the person who was going to be crucified, crucifixion didn't take place in Rome itself. It would take place on the other cities. And Roman citizens were never crucified. This was only for others. And it would have to take place outside the city because it would be profane for the Jewish people to have it take place in city. And so what would happen is they would carry a sign that said what their crime was, and they would have to carry this sign or have it hung around them while they carried their cross through the city. And they would go through as many streets as possible to the place where they would be crucified. And the whole idea was to bring shame and let people know, yeah, this is what happens to criminals. It also was there actually for judicial reason. If someone saw the crime and they could validate that this person didn't do it, it was an opportunity for acquittal, but it didn't happen very often. And so here Jesus is marching through this city with this sign that says the king of the Jews. And to me, that's amazing. And as they would read the sign, it's written in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. Why is that? We know because those cultures are there, right? Those cultures. But, I mean, any significance? I mean, those are the three great languages of the world at that time. Isn't it interesting that the three prominent languages of that day have the declaration, this is the king of the Jews? It's almost as if God, again, is just making a proclamation. I'm just letting the world know this is the king. This is the one who I spoke about. You know, when we think of gospel, the gospel of Jesus, to us the gospel is about Jesus dying for our sin and raising again from the dead. And that's kind of our mind frame of gospel. But the gospel really is about the promise first, the promised Messiah. In the Jewish mind, Messiah was the promised one. And so gospel isn't just about the death of Christ for our sin. It is about the promise of God to deliver his people. And then this is how he delivered his people. And so gospel is involved a lot more than just the crucifixion. It's the whole recognition of who Jesus is, the promised Messiah of God. And so proclamation of this is the king of the Jews is also very important because 
This is the promise of God to the Jewish people and now to the world. And so what is happening here is just the beginning of what is going to happen and change the world. What is happening right here is about to spread like a contagion and spread throughout the entire planet. And it's almost as if this sign is just saying, here it comes. This is the king of the Jews. This is the promised one for the Jewish people, the Messiah. This is the one I told you about. He's coming. He has come. He's going to pay for the sin of the world, and he is going to change everything. And so this is the gospel. The promised one has come and has dealt and brought salvation to his people. Any other thoughts on any other passages we'll want to cover those things? I like your thoughts. No? Okay. The soldiers, back in the first verses, when they are taking him, they carry, take charge of Jesus. In verse 17, they carry, he has to carry his cross with the sign going to the place of the skull, Golgotha. In Latin, it's known as Calvary. Um, As they're going to this place, to be crucified, we see that they also are um, dividing his garments. Verse 22, or verse um, 23, the soldiers, they took his clothes, divided into four shares, one for each of them. Now, the, the Jewish person, uh, every Jewish male wore five articles of clothing. His shoes, his turban, tunic, his girdle um, with his tunic, and his outer robe. There are four soldiers, so they divide those things, but then they have the the final one, the tunic, is described as being without seam, and it's woven in one piece from top to the bottom. This is the precise description of a, a linen tunic that the high priest would also wear. And so a priest was to be a person who was between God and man. The priest was to, in a sense, build a bridge between God and man. And here Jesus is wearing the tunic, which is the same thing that a priest would wear. And so he goes on and he says that they're casting lots for his garment. They're doing these things that the scripture might be fulfilled, that they divided my clothes and cast lots for my garments. And that's in Psalm 22 that it talks about that. But it's interesting that they did these things and not even knowing that it was prophetic. Not even the recognition of this is the garment that a priest would wear and here is Jesus playing that role and about to bridge that gap between humanity and God, and casting his lots. And the reason that it's important is because of what was taking place. I mean, John is trying to give us an understanding of the humanity and purpose of Jesus. At the time that John is writing this, which is about 100 AD, and looking back, there has already 
begun a lot of thought about Jesus, who he was, a lot of misconception about Jesus and who he was. Uh, Gnosticism is very prevalent. Gnostic thought is that everything that is spirit is good and everything that is physical or material is bad. And so Jesus must not be material. He must not have a body. He must be just a spirit. And so as John is writing this, you're going to see that he's going to be very clear that when Jesus died, it was a person who died. It wasn't just a spirit. And so he goes on to try and bring that about. He talks about his clothing. And then in verse 25, as they go near the cross, we see that near the cross stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. There's way too many Marys in the Bible, okay? In the New Testament, there's just Marys all over the place, Mary. <laughs> Even today, there's still the Marys. Um, but what we see here, I think, is pretty touching because... Most of the disciples have fled and are in fear for their lives. But still close to him are named four women and then the one disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John. Scripture, especially the New Testament, and at the crucifixion and resurrection, the women play a very prominent role. In fact, throughout the Gospels, we never see Jesus' interaction with women being one where he chastens the women. It's only the guys. It's only the men. It's the Pharisees. It's the disciples. It's other men that he has rebuke for or these kinds of things. But the women are always portrayed in a very favorable light. Which, again, for this time, women weren't allowed to vote. Women weren't seen, really, as a, a citizen. And so here the Gospels are really giving a, a prominent role to women. And all you who are moms can only begin to imagine what it would be like to see your child put to death in a horrific way. And is there anything that could keep you from being there? Is there anything that would stop you from wanting to, to do what you could to stop what was happening or to be there? As a mom, you would just be drawn to this place. And that's exactly what we see. And... You know, it would be a shame if we missed the emotion of this moment to see a mom watching her son tortured, crucified, put to death. Crucifixion is just awful. It's a horrendous process. The other Gospels go into different details about the scourging. John doesn't talk a whole lot about the details of the scourging and the process. But we know that this was something that was just brutal. And once Pilate said, take him to the cross, gave that verdict, it happened immediately. He didn't go into a holding cell. It happened right then, right there. 
The judgment was there. Right when Pilate turned him over, he was going to the cross. He had been scourged. He'd been beaten. He was already bloodied. And then he's going his way to the cross. And so what's taking place here is happening just so quickly. You know, Jesus is taken in. The next day he's brought before Pilate. He's scourged. He's beaten. He's pronounced to go to the cross. And then it happens. And it's all just happening right now. And his followers are just everywhere, scattered. They're hearing it from a distance, watching from a distance. But there are that stands at the foot of the cross is his mother. His mother's sister, which we know from the other Gospels, from Mark 15 and Matthew 27, it's Salome. It's the mother of James and John. Jesus actually rebuked her in Matthew chapter 20 when she wanted to place her sons on his right side or his left. And he says, that's not for me to give. Are they going to drink of this cup? And so she is there. Again, we don't see Joseph Joseph has probably passed away by this time. We have no mention of Joseph in in the scene or series throughout the gospel. So he probably passed away before all of this has taken place. Um, Mary, the wife of Clopas, we don't know much about her. Mary Magdalene, we know that she had been delivered of seven demons. And so she had been a person with a lot of issues, to say the least. Um, But we see her there at the cross. We see them there at the cross. And again, the people who are there at this moment are the people who would normally be considered outcast. And also what I think is telling here is that there is something in humanity that God saw worth dying for. That the potential of humanity is... Incredible. And even in this condition, before Christ's sacrifice, we see an amazing love and devotion to Jesus. You know that he would be there on the cross and see the people who love him. I think is pretty amazing. And so even though he, in a sense, died alone, no one could save him, around him were some people who loved him. And so as we see this, and as Jesus sees this, what is amazing, when Jesus saw his mom there and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, he says to the woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, John, here is your mother. And from that time on, He took her home and took care of him. And after all, John had this kind of double qualification. He wasn't only one of Jesus' disciples. He was also a cousin. Okay, this was one of his cousins. And so he is telling John, make sure she is cared for. And she's also telling her, make sure he is cared for. In other words... Take care of each other. Love one another. Here at the cross, Jesus is caring for them, even though he's the one being crucified. John's care for Mary is that they would comfort each other. And even this time of loneliness, that there would be that understanding. You you have each other. Care for each other. And so it's a very powerful and endearing scene here. 
I mean, it's amazing. And at that time, he just takes care of her. From that point on, she stays at his home. He does take care of her. And it's a very powerful moment at the cross there at that point. Any thoughts on that? Any questions about that point? Okay. You know, we know little about Mary. We see her in Acts in the upper room, chapter 2. We don't have any account, really, of her after those things. And so we, we know from previous events in the gospel that they didn't believe. They tried to they thought he'd lost his mind, one of the Gospels said. They, Your mother and brothers are out here because they thought he'd gone crazy. <laughs> this is amazing. And so they're trying to get Jesus because he's in trouble. He's going to get hurt if he continues this way. And he says, who's my mother, my brothers, my sisters, these who do the will of my father are my mother's brothers, sisters. And she's in his life, but we don't see the interaction. But think about all that she has to know and has gone through. I mean, she was there at the virgin birth, right? <laughs> you know, she, she was there in a very real way. She knows something is special about this boy. And as she sees all this happening, this is overwhelming her. This isn't probably playing out the way she had thought it. And she cannot help but be destroyed by what's happening. But she stays with the disciples And when the resurrection takes place, we see her continuing there with the disciples. And so she held on through it all. You know, she did hold on, which is, you know, a testament to her and what she had to go through. And so I I just, I, I can't imagine seeing your child put to death in this way. I just can't imagine what was going on in her mind um, and in her heart. Um, It's just horrific. You know, even though this is what we know, the Son of God who will rise again, the emotion of this moment can't be escaped or looked past. Just can't. Um, And it's so hard for us because of what we know. You know, well, we know he's alive, and so everything's okay looking backwards. You know, but at that moment, gosh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how how she took it. Just, but that she held on is is amazing, and stayed with the disciples after that. Yeah, I think it's cool that he takes care of John too, because John was there. Where are the other disciples? We don't see him. Yeah, yeah, we don't see him. They they've scattered. You know, he goes on in, in verse. 38, he talks about Joseph of Arimathea and of Nicodemus are both mentioned here. We see these people who are part of the Sanhedrin. Um, They feared the Jewish leaders. You know, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. But here they come and take his body. And it seems like even though they're afraid, they step forward. Something happens when... This event happens that pushes them to step in and to actually show up. You know, so many times it's when tragedy strikes that people step in and show up. I mean, in in natural ways as well as in this 
situation here. It's when the building is on fire that the heroes rise up and run into the building, right? It's like before I never thought I'd run into a building, but once, you know, the building was on fire and I knew that there was someone in there, I had to go in. And we see Nicodemus and Joseph say, okay, they just put Jesus to death. And they know that it wasn't right. And all of a sudden, all the fear that they had about the Jewish Jewish leaders and their power seems to not matter. You know what? Enough is enough. I'm going to step up. I'm going to step into this role and I'm going to do what I wanted to do. I respected this man. And it says here that 75 pounds of the mirror and aloe was done. That's a lot. In the commentaries, it says that's enough for a king. Okay, this is a lot that they did for this burial. They showed him a whole lot of respect. And so again, we see that Jesus going to the cross and when he went to the cross, he said, I will draw all men to myself. And we see that happening. We see now these religious leaders starting to say, I don't care anymore. I'm going to give my respects to this man. I am going to show him the respects. And they do. They take his body. They wrap it. They actually have a tomb for it. They ask Pilate for that. And they go and they bury him there at the tomb. Um, wait, we've got to go back. I skipped ahead. Um, verse 28. Knowing that everything had now been finished... And so the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk, the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, knowing that everything had now been finished. So after Jesus tells them to take care of each other, he knows everything is done that I needed to done. And it says, I am thirsty. And again, John goes out of his way to stress the humanity of Jesus and his suffering. And he does it on purpose. He thirsted just like we thirst. And when they put the sponge on the hyssop plant, the hyssop plant is what they used in Exodus 32 to sprinkle the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And so in the Jewish mind, that hyssop plant would ring, oh, I know about that plant. That plant was used to sprinkle the blood. And so here is the Passover lamb. The hyssop plant is mentioned here, and they lift that up to Jesus' lips. In Psalm 69, 21, it says, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And that's the scripture that is fulfilled. And then when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. All the other gospels, say that Jesus doubted or that he gave a shout and then gave up the ghost. John tells us what the shout was. The shout was, it is finished. And that's an amazing thing. He doesn't just call it the great cry. He just says, Jesus said, it is finished. And then it says that with that, he bowed his head. And the words that are used there for bow his head, it's as if he were to lay his head on a pillow. 
And so Jesus is saying, it is finished. He fulfills the scripture. There's the hyssop plant. Everything pointing to the, the Passover, the Passover lamb on the cross. And after he says, it is finished, it's like he went to sleep. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, it says, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's the same words used. The Son of Man has no place where he can lay down and rest. But now that it's finished, he can lay down and rest. It's amazing. And it's almost like, okay, I've done what I'm, I've come here to do. I can now rest. I can now finally put my head on the pillow. Have you ever had one of those long days, hard days? Maybe you've worked and man, your, your legs are sore, your back is sore. You can barely keep your eyes open. You've been working as long as you could. I remember when we were remodeling our house and there was one night that didn't end when we had to put in the water heater and had to get things connected because we needed water the next day, you know, one of those things. And I can remember being under the house doing piping all day. And I remember it was like four or five in the morning when finally it was finished. You know what I mean? It was like, okay, it's done. And I don't think I showered. I think I just crawled into the bed and just called it quits. And just that finality and just said, okay, I'm done. And finally being able to rest because the work that you had done finally was completed and now you could rest. I wonder about our lives. I wonder if we were to think about what it is we are here to do. And if we had the mentality that Jesus has where, you know, foxes don't have dens, birds, you know, or foxes have dens, birds have nests, but I really don't have a place to rest until it's finished. And I wonder if we think that our life here is supposed to be all about finding rest. And I wonder what would happen if we had more of a mentality of just, you know what, there are are things to do. I, I don't want to rest yet. I remember when I was thinking about taking a church in St. Helena up in the Napa area. We would drive up there and it was like as beautiful as beautiful can be. I mean, you're driving around and you're just like, oh man, this is nice. And the little town is just gorgeous and the food is great. I mean, there's just, it's just, man, this is great. But I remember after one of those times where we go and I was just in turmoil wondering, am I supposed to take this church? Is this really what God wants for me or is this what I want? And then we traveled. We had Lauren and one of her friends, Alyssa and Karina, myself. We went into San Francisco for the day to you know finish the day because we were up in that area. And I remember going into the city and there's the hustle and bustle and there are people begging on the streets and all this commotion going on. And I remember just feeling like I feel alive here. I feel like there's something to do here. I felt like I was retiring if I went up there. And I wasn't ready to retire. I wasn't finished. 
I felt like, no, I, I need to do something else. And I can remember in my mind at that point saying, I'm not going to take that position because it's not for me. I'll go stir crazy if I'm there. I'll go stir crazy. I can't just go out there and look at all the great vineyards. I mean, they're beautiful. I love it. But I just can't live there because it's not finished. And this mentality that Jesus had, finally he could rest. When he went to the cross, now, everything that I was supposed to do has been done. And then he could rest. It is finished. And so he gave up his spirit, it says. And then we see that they go to take them down because the Jewish tradition was they weren't allowed to have a body up overnight. They had to bury the body before it was evening. The Romans didn't care. The Romans would leave the bodies up there for days. And literally it would take days before a person usually would die because they could still breathe, but they'd have to push up on their legs so that they catch breath and finally they would die of just uh, exposure, of fatigue and suffocation usually. But to stop that, they would break their legs so that they wouldn't be able to pull themselves up and then they would suffocate. But Jesus, it was already seen that he was dead. And so to make sure he was dead, again, they thrust a spear in his side to make sure that he was dead. And then it says that out of that came blood with water, which is very interesting. Physiologically, we know that it shows that the sack, the water sack around his heart had been ruptured, that his heart had ruptured. But it's also significant because blood and water, what significance do they have in Christian tradition. What are the two sacraments? Baptism and communion, right? Blood and water. And so there is a connection possibly there that why the sacraments are there, pointing to the sacraments, the blood and the water, um, but not a bone of his was broken, as the scriptures talked about. Um, they will look on him whom they have pierced, again, fulfilling the scriptures. You know, all these things are, are lining up and God is pointing to this moment. And, and this is the moment. This is the moment that God has been working to fulfill since the beginning, since the fall. And, and it's now happening where the sin of mankind has been paid for. Joseph and Nicodemus take the body and they bury it. And because it was the Passover, they found the tomb. They got him in the tomb during the Passover. So we see that the Lamb of God, Jesus, is crucified on the Passover. We see, just like the Lamb back in Exodus 32, we see the Lamb here doing the same thing. The death is now going to pass over mankind, those who put their faith in the Lamb of God. Any other thoughts just on this chapter? Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Okay. We'll get into that a little bit more because it has to go in the resurrection. There was actually two Sabbaths that were taking place at that time. Okay. 
so we'll look into that a little bit more. Yeah, because I, I don't have all the answers for you this week. Uh, good question. Special Sabbath. You caught that. It's special. Any other thoughts? Let's pray. Father, once again, we are aware of your sacrifice for us. And, Lord, the power behind what took place is difficult to to embrace and to grasp. And yet, Lord, you've given your life for us, and we just read about it. And, Lord, may we now move from a place of reading and knowing to living in the reality of. May the reality of your crucifixion and death for our sin free us to live for you. You came to give us life. May now we live with the fullness that you have died for us to have. I pray, God, that you would help us to remember you and what you've done, Lord, the the cross and, and all it means, the the remembrance even in the Lord's table and taking the bread and the cup, Lord, proclaiming your death until you return. Lord, this week we have done just that, or this past week, and Lord, here we are again, remembering once again your death for us. Thank you, God, for your goodness and your blessing. Thank you for your love and faithfulness to us. Thank you that it is finished, that all that was necessary for us has been satisfied by you. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your love for us. Bless our time together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.